0: This is The Atomic Bombshell, The Minx Devlin Chronicles. A 10 part exploration of the astonishing life and tumultuous times of film noir goddess and 50s exploitation queen, Clara Minx Devlin. The woman who incinerates the screen with her evil desires. Trouble never
1: came in a more seductive package.
2: You know, it's funny. You're a tramp, a slaughter, a cheap, worthless strumpet, and yet I'm still madly in love with you.
1: A Renoir portrait as written by Balzac, but with the droll irony
2: of Voltaire. She is, in my considered opinion, the most dangerous woman alive.
0: As always, I'm your host, Arlie Proctor, here with Hazel Matthews, Minx Devlin's granddaughter, and Skylar DeWolf, film professor and scholar. In our last episode, Minx Devlin's stardom vaporized in the catastrophe of an epic Howard Hughes film gone wrong, followed by her own adoptive mother naming her as a communist before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Now, this was 1951, the height of the Red Scare hysteria being whipped up by Senator Joseph McCarthy. Like the Salem witch trials, lives were ruined by hints, allegations, and rumors of affiliation to the Communist Party. In this episode... Mink Devlin will be faced with a number of very stark choices. Luckily, we've got Minx Devlin's own words from her journals to show us what she thought and felt as she faced this oncoming calamity.
3: This is my favorite part of my grandmother's life story. I think everyone wonders what they would do if they had to make the kind of stark moral choices Mink's had to make.
0: I agree. I mean... Uh, Here she asks the most basic questions that uh, sentient human beings can ask of ourselves. I mean, who am I? What's the right thing to do? And most importantly, how do I stay sane when the whole world is going mad?
4: Yeah, and how anybody could stay sane with what she was going through, I really don't know. Because just as a reminder, Minx has been suspended by RKO Studios and abandoned by Howard Hughes. She is alone. She is pregnant. She is vilified by her own mother And, Hazel, you have her journal entry, I think, right?
3: Yeah. Dixon Cook meets me at the port in Long Beach. He's aged 15 years in the year I've been gone. He hands me a magazine called Red Channels, the report of communist influence in radio and television. Two pages are bookmarked. I turn to the first. There's Dix's name and a list of every progressive organization he and I have ever ever supported. You know, real commie stuff like providing food and medicine for Russian war orphans. The second name is mine. Clara Minx Devlin, Hollywood Young Communist League, 1938 through 46, Communist Party card number 57275.
0: Now, we've got the famous newsreel footage of Minx's adopted mother, Margaret Pendleton Kingsbury, appearing before HUAC the House Un-American Activities Committee.
5: I know from personal experience, yes, it would change me to admit it, I was a communist, that reds are a cowardly, slithering mass of primordial, traitorous slime, too craven to crawl out from under their rocks and expose themselves to the cleansing wrath of right-thinking Americans. To think that my own daughter, Clara Devon, who calls herself Minx, It's still a red. Fills me with shame, regret, and revulsion. I can only pray that she comes to her senses before it's too late.
0: Miss Kingsbury makes a vow.
5: I swear to atone for my sins by exposing every bomb-throwing Bolshevik, soapbox Stalin, radical mobocrat, and parlor pink fellow traveler. Not just on my program's, not just in radio, but in all the entire American entertainment industry.
0: Minx is absolutely furious. She calls Maggie, who agrees to meet her in the back row of the balcony of the Pantages Theatre on Hollywood Boulevard, 10.30pm. This is from her journal.
3: The picture is where danger lives, featuring Howie's latest heartthrob, Faith de Meur. Yes, that would be me up there on the screen, if not for my dear mother. Even before I open my mouth, Maggie says, I hope you appreciate what I've done for you. I've gone way out on a limb for you, Missy. Done for me? Done for me, I say? What limb is that, mother? I've put my reputation on the line to put you in the national spotlight, and thanks to me, you've had a golden opportunity to get yourself on every front page in America doing what I've done. Renounce the party. Wrap yourself in the flag and throw yourself on the mercy of the movie-going public. Sure, why not? All I have to do is name all our friends and ruin their lives. This whole time she's been watching the movie screen. Now she turns and fixes me with those steel blue eyes. Their lives are already ruined. Your job is to save yourself, Clara. It's so easy. Just blame me. I forced you to join. It's the perfect alibi that happens to be true. If you're a good girl, you'll be back bigger than ever. If you don't, she pauses. I say, what then? She turns back to the movie screen. Then I wash my hands of you forever. I open my mouth to say something, but I realize it's all been said. Since the day she adopted me, Maggie has been my instructor on how to survive in this world. Do on to others and move on. My teacher has just presented her final exam. No letter grades this time. Strictly pass-fail.
0: And so, Minx faces the most perilous choice of her life. From her journal.
3: April 5th. God, do I remember that day. Today Julius and Ethel Rosenberg get their death sentence. Dixon Cook Jr appears before Huac and refuses to name names. And me? I'm at home. When my water breaks, I panic. What am I going to do? Call a cab? I'm in LA. That could take 45 minutes. I waddle outside. There's a 49 Plymouth across the street with two young lads pretending to read newspapers. The FBI, naturally. J. Edgar Hoover has put a 24-7 tail on me. Six agents working eight-hour shifts, seven days a week. I shamble up to them and pound on their side window with an open, blood-stained hand. Give a working girl a lift to the hospital? The first agent says, I'm sorry, miss, but we have no idea what you're." But the second one cuts him off. Shut up and help the lady into the back seat. Over two blocks of bumping and swaying, I know we'll never make it. Pull over! My daughter is delivered by FBI Special Agents Nick Nightingale and Harlow Cummings. When we arrive at the Angel of Mercy Hospital at the corner of Venice and Bagley, my baby is rushed to the incubator unit. I can't know it then, but this will be the last time I lay eyes on her, my daughter, for several decades. I'm in my hospital bed. I make a decision that will haunt me the rest of my life. I'm 22, scared to death staring into an open grave. I can't take care of myself. How am I going to take care of a helpless child? I decide to give her up for adoption. I can't. I shouldn't. But I do. Oh, God. Oh, you can just, you feel her torment. It's so heartbreaking. I know, yeah.
0: So Minx leaves the hospital three days later. When she gets home, she finds a letter. It's from Dixon Cook, Jr. On letterhead stationery from the Plaza Hotel in New York. Stated April 2nd, 1951.
3: This was in her scrapbook. Um, after what she did the hospital to get a letter like this? I, I, I can't read it. Would, would you mind? Sure.
0: Here's the letter. Dear Clara, They had the names. That's what gets me, Toots. They had the damn names, all of them. They gave me a list of names they already had. All I had to do is go in front of the committee, pretend I was a hapless dupe of the commies, and beg the committee for forgiveness. To show my good faith, I had to give them the names that they gave me of my fellow communist conspirators. If you already have the names, I said, why do you need me to get up there on the witness stand and give them back to you? And you know what they said to me? to prove that you're sincere. Sincere. Right. About that list. You were on it, baby. In fact, you were the very first name, followed by a bunch of people we both love. The last name was a guy who had died of a heart attack after getting his own HUAC summons. I'd given the eulogy at his funeral. I praised him for not ratting out his fellow comrades. I did my best to talk myself into naming those names, but... You know, it's funny, the more I tried, the more I thought of those sons of bitches in the docket at Nuremberg. Everybody follows orders and nothing ever changes. Not until somebody stands up and says, this is wrong and I won't do it. And so, well, you know the rest. Whatever you do, don't waste time grieving for me, toots. I just want to be dead more than I want to be alive. When I was younger, I used sex, alcohol, and an endless stream of wisecracks to outrun the jackal. I just can't run anymore. You have your own special destiny, Clara. Know that I'm at peace, and that you are now and will always be my one great, everlasting love. You're the one, Toots. Everybody gets one, and you're mine. All my love forever, Dix.
3: Ah, it just kills me. Dixon Cook was my grandmother's first great love. Right after this letter, there's a newspaper clipping from the L.A. Herald Express. Red Scribe croaks self in Gotham.
0: The funeral is in New York on April 10th. Now, this is once again from her journal.
3: Thirteen people are there. Eleven are old newspaper and Broadway pals. The Hollywood contingent is yours truly and Raquel Rocky Del Fuego, the so-called Tijuana firecracker of 1930 screwball comedies and one of Dix's ex-wives. The service lasts half an hour. I'm invited to say a few words. Dixon Cook Jr. was an adorable reprobate who loved women, made millions of people laugh their heads off, and sucked on language like a peppermint lifesaver. He was true to himself to the very end, and now he's gone. For those he left behind, there's a hole in the world big enough to swallow the universe. Thank you. After the service, the minister hands me the cremation urn in an envelope. It's a note from Dick's.
0: Dear Glamour Girl, it would fill me with gladness if you would take these ashes and blow them in the face of Howard Hughes.
3: That guy can make me laugh even after he's dead. As I exit the church, a sweaty butterball in a baggy suit shoves something into my hand. You've been served, Miss Devlin. It's my pink slip. I've been ordered to appear in room 226 of the old house building before the United States House of Representatives Committee on Un-American Activities.
0: Now we come to what I think of as maybe the biggest challenge of Miss Devlin's entire life. This is the one that just killed her lover, Dixon Cook, Jr., So what's she going to do when she goes in front of the House Committee on Un-American Activities? She can pretend she's contrite and give names destroying the lives of those people, all of whom are her friends and colleagues, or she can uh, tell the committee to go to hell and lose everything. Now, it's good to remember that uh, mostly what Minx was being accused of here was supporting Uh, Russian war relief efforts during World War II. Mostly what she did on those various committees she joined that got her on the blacklist was uh, raise money to feed starving Russian war orphans. And this is when Russia was our ally. (laughs) In fact, you know, most historians agree Russia defeated the Third Reich by crushing the German army at Stalingrad. The U.S. lost about 450,000 people in World War II. The Russians lost more than 20 million For every one we lost, they lost 40. And Minx was just part of the effort to try to keep their children from starving. Now, she's clearly in agony about her dilemma. She writes,
3: I'm supposed to be in Washington in a week. What am I going to do? If I invoke the First Amendment and tell the committee they have no right to question my political beliefs, they'll hold me in contempt and send me to prison, just like the Hollywood Ten. If I take the fifth, they'll blacklist me. If I cooperate, I'll betray my friends and everything I believe in. It's a hell of a choice. I swallow my pride and dial up the Howard Hughes exchange. Howard himself comes on the line. Well, Clara, I knew you'd come crawling back to me. He arranges a meeting with his fixer, Damascus Poe.
0: Ah, Damascus Mm Poe. Now, the blacklist produced a new legal occupation Industry clearance specialist. This was Damascus Poe. He's the one who was doing this for Howard Hughes. Here's how Minks described their meeting.
3: According to Poe, my salvation would be delivered in three parts. First, I'd meet in the closed session with committee members and spill my guts about my sordid communist past. Then I'd have lunch with Hedda Hopper and give her an exclusive interview about what a poor, pathetic dupe I've been and how I was now an all-American straight arrow. And then I'd appear before HUAC and publicly give back the names they'd given me in the closed session. Poe handed me the list of ten names. The first name on the list was Dixon Cook Jr. I knew he'd be there, but to see his name in black and white. A horrible wave of nausea crashed over me. I asked Poe if I could give nine names instead of ten. No, it had to be ten. Was there another name besides Dixon Cook Jr. I could give? No, it had to be Dix. This would prove that I'm, and here's the word again from Dix's suicide letter, sincere. He said, everyone knows about you and Mr. Cook. Sharing his name will be seen as an act of courage. Any other course of action will cause you to be blacklisted and possibly imprisoned. Can I say it any more plainly?
0: Minks knows she has to get a second opinion. So she calls up an old pal. Clarence Vanderbeek, the lawyer who bailed her out of her pot bust back in 1947.
3: I describe my predicament, he says... Let's say you become a friendly witness. You give Mr. Cook's name and the others. You kiss Hedda's ring and she absolves you. You think that's the end of it? I nod, he smirks. Clara, my dear, they'll pound you into the ground like a tent peg. Once you give in, you can't turn back. They've got you forever. I tell him I don't understand. And the smirk goes away, replaced by the sad smile of the wise elder. What happens when the FBI asks you to finger more of your pals? What happens when Duke Wayne tells the American Legion it's time to drop the atom bomb on China and Hedda calls you for a comment? Think you can just say no thanks? Did you have any doubt they'll blacklist you all over again? Is this how you want to live your life? If you're doing this to keep your swimming pool, that's all you'll end up with, just the pool. They'll take your heart, spirit and soul. Something happens in this moment. Mm -hmm, Uh, Her, her only comment after this meeting is they can only take everything if I let them. Oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm so, I'm so proud of her that this is a decision that took a lot of courage. She, she goes on to describe her trip to Washington to testify. The night before my testimony, I change into my gaudiest evening gown and go night clubbing. First the swanky places, then the after hour joints, and finally a break of dawn greasy spoon coffee shop where I caffeinate myself for my farewell performance. At 9 a.m., I meet Barrister Damascus Poe at the old house building and I tell him my plan. He turns the color of Hamlet's father and says that Mr. Hughes will not be happy. No, he will not. I gather myself. Showtime.
0: Time for a short break. Ever notice when people like us ask for a donation to sustain this podcast, we say we're supported by people like you. We're not supported by people like you. We're supported by you, personally, sitting right there. We designed this podcast to go in your ear, through your heart, by way of your funny bone, and directly to your purse or wallet. If you take just a moment to go to richlyspun.com and pitch us some elusive spondulics, a.k.a. cash money, we'd so appreciate it. That said, now back to The Atomic Bombshell. February 2nd, 1952, at 10.15 a.m. in room 226, Old House Office Building, the Honorable Francis E. Walter presiding. Committee members present, Representatives Francis E. Walter, Morgan M. Mulder, Clyde Doyle, James B. Fraser Jr., Harold H. Veld, Bernard W. Kearney, Donald L. Jackson, and Charles E. Potter. Here is the actual authentic soundtrack of the March of Time newsreel, about this fabled event.
3: Are you represented by
0: counsel, Ms. Devlin? Is uh, Mr. Poe present? Mr. Poe is sitting this one out. Uh, oh, uh, I see. Uh, before we commence, uh, the chair wants it in the record that Miss Devlin is dressed in a wholly unsuitable fashion for these proceedings, and this solemn body is affronted.
1: Hey, give me a break. It's the nicest thing I own. Jean-Louis did it for me. You know, the guy who did Rita's Guild Address? Uh, well, well, you describe it, uh, just for the record. Delighted. It's a knockout. A shocking pink taffeta evening gown with a plunging neckline slit to the upper thigh for dancing purposes. Elbow-length pink silk gloves and a white fox fur stole. The diamond necklace is borrowed. I had one night to spend here in Washington, so I figured I'd see what the nightlife was like. It swelled. The committee would be happy to take a brief recess to allow you to change into something
0: more suitable? No.
1: That's right. No, really? No, really. Where and when were you born, Miss Devlin? I was born Clara Beau Devlin on October 29th, 1928, in Hollywood, California. What is your occupation? I ensnare hapless men using my feminine wiles to lure them into their doom. On film. For money. Miss Devlin, if you I am, or was, a highly paid performer in the Hollywood motion picture industry.
0: Thank you. By the way,
1: what is that in your hand? This is a martini glass. And I'd be most appreciative if you'd help me fill it. A Gibson martini, straight up. Anybody?
2: If you continue to act in a flippant
5: manner, young lady, you'll be excused. Is that a promise? I'd love that. I just
2: bet you would. Now let's get right to the $64 question.
1: You mean about my being a card-carrying member of the Hollywood Young Communist League when I was nine years old? So,
2: so, you admit Oh, yeah. Now we're getting somewhere. Let's start there, shall we? How were you lured into this group at such a tender age? We have
1: an expression in Hollywood, Mr. Jackson. That expression is, cut to the chase. You want the real goods, don't you, Congressman? Real goods? You mean... Names, dates, places. The whole sordid story behind the large and ominous organization that is trying to hijack our nation's movie screens, take over this great country, and brainwash its citizens. Well, now, that is the entire purpose of this committee, Miss Devlin, to ascertain if such an organization exists... And it's so to destroy. Oh, hold on to your toupee, congressman. I am ready to name names, cite atrocities, and give you the whole squalid conspiracy chapter and verse. This committee would look very kindly on testimony such as that. I bet this committee would. Okay. Imagine a group of shadowy individuals whose sole purpose is to undermine the American system, to subvert the intent of our founding fathers. Now imagine that this sinister cabal is composed of our society's most marginal types— angry, disenfranchised, hate-mongers, bent on depriving, law-abiding citizens of their constitutional rights. That the persons engaged the in this names. conspiracy, whose names I'll reveal in a moment, are engaged in a nefarious conspiracy of truly heinous nature to undermine the most fundamental precepts on which this nation was founded. And they're willing to employ rats, stool-pigeons, squealers, Fingermen and psychopathic liars to achieve their despicable ends. Name Do you so like to different. catch a glimpse of these robes? You need look in a mirror, because I'm talking about you guys, Mr. Chairman, you McCarthy Nixon and every other fascist crank on the public payroll. No
2: witness can come
1: here and insult the committee. Luckily, a group of right-thinking patriots headed That's by you, Mr is going to stop you from using the Bill of Rights as toilet paper. Please remove the witness from this room. It's obvious he's not cooperative. But I've got the information you want. Names, dates, places, boom rallies, clan gatherings, synagogue burnings, lynchings. This is the real deal. Don't you want to hear about this conspiracy? No, the witness
2: is dismissed. Sergeant escort her the chamber, please.
0: Meg flies home. When she gets there, she discovers that her house has been emptied of everything but the bed. Three letters are on the floor under the front door mail slot. The first one is from her adoptive mother, Maggie Kingsbury.
3: This is from her scrapbook. Dear Clara, you are a fool. I wash my hands of you forever. No, that's not quite true. You can still redeem yourself. Even after your disgraceful, reckless performance before the House members, I'm still willing to help you. I'm doing it for your daughter. If you don't do what I ask, she'll be forever mine and mine alone. That's right, Clara. I've taken possession of my granddaughter. I have resources, and I was able to bring them to bear on the situation. I will not hesitate to use these same resources, legal, political, social, to crush you if you try to interfere you could hire a lawyer but guess what clara you're broke remember years ago when you authorized C. bliss to oversee your finances and gave him the power to write checks on your account he was facing the same consequences you and i were because of his past political associations so i helped him cleanse himself he thanked me by impounding the money in your accounts to set up a fund for your daughter's future education So now, your net worth is exactly zero. I've taken your books and furniture, so you won't be able to sell them and forestall this decision. You've one hope of finding work. Renounce your old life, name names, and join me. Face it, Clara, you have no choice. None. Give in. Do the smart thing. Save yourself. Yours very truly, Margaret Pendleton Kingsbury.
0: Minks opens the second letter. This one is from the Internal Revenue Service. They're seizing her house and selling it at auction. Her agent had stopped paying the mortgage and property taxes without telling her. It seems that, well, looks like all is lost as she opens the third letter from her journal.
3: It's from a man I've never heard of. Magnus Woolley, attorney at law. All it says is, I've got something that's yours. Please call me at your earliest convenience so you can pick it up. I meet Attorney Woolley in his shabby office in the Orpheum Theater building on Broadway. Turns out that before he was a lawyer, he was a vaudeville agent who knew my mother. He drags a huge steamer trunk into the room and hands me the letter that came with it. The letter reads, Magnus old pal, if you're reading this, it means I'm dead. Please deliver this trunk and all its contents to my next of kin, Minx Devlin, Hollywood, USA. Regards, Doc Hazard. Underneath it are the numbers 5, 26, 34, 2, 22, 18, 38. The name Doc Hazard rings a distant bell. When I ask Wooly about him, he was one of those crazy adventure hounds who shot movies through darkest Africa with a gun and camera, that kind of stuff. It's all in the trunk. You'll see. The trunk looks like it's been to both poles, the bottom of the ocean, and survived the D-Day invasion. It's covered with exotic travel stickers. Borneo, Timbuktu, Pago Pago, Machu Picchu, Zanzibar. I jimmy the lock. Inside, I find a scrapbook with my life story, as compiled by Doc Hazard from newspapers and magazines he gathered in his world travels. My birth announcement? Film premieres? The pot bust? Everything up until 49. Why'd he do this? Then it hits me. Of course, this guy must have been my father. 1928, swashbuckling filmmaker meets eager starlet, a nightclub, a tryst, and the baby arrives while he's off watching Gorilla's mate in the Belgian Congo.
4: Hazel, can I just say that every year I teach an entire summer course on Doc Hazard, <laughs> because this guy had a life, let me tell you. I will try to give you the short version of it. Doc Hazard was one of the immortals of a lost cultural archetype, which is the explorer-filmmaker-showman. We're talking Frank Buck, Clyde Beatty, Martin johnson and Doc Hazard. Forbidden Jungle was the name of the first smash hit Goona Goona movie, as they <laughs> call them. And for the next 15 years, Doc Hazard financed his globe-trotting celluloid safaris by releasing these heavy-breathing movies with names like Jungle Gigolo and Gorilla Gals and Song of the Baboon, I'm not making this up, and Naked Love Savages. Ah, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> So Hazard would send all this footage back to the United States, and there it was edited, narrated, titled, and distributed by who else? His producing partner, Herbert W. Zuzman. Ah, uh, who else?
3: Right. Uh, I'll continue from her. Okay. Yeah. I empty the trunk, and what's this? Hmm. Huh. A false bottom. I use a kitchen knife to pry up the cedar floor. There's a narrow strong box with a combination lock. <gasps> yes! The note! five, twenty-six, thirty-four, two, twenty-two, eighteen, thirty-eight. Bingo! A ten-inch reel of sixteen-millimeter film is nestled there, and a note with the words, Clara Devlin, on the outside. The note says, Dear Clara, if you're ever jammed up and need dough, Take this reel of film to a wannabe DeMille and full-time swindler named Herb Zuzman and tell him to get out his wallet. Tell that cheap son of a bitch that he was right all along. I was holding out on him. This darling is the real solid gold McCoy. Rip-snorting, blood-curdling, money-in-the-bank stuff that'll give that thieving bastard a heart attack. Hold out for top dollar. Repeat, hold out for top dollar. Dollar, walk away if you have to. Proud of you, Clara. See you on the other side, Doc.
0: In his research, uh, Skyler discovered a Cinémathèque Francais documentary from the early 60s that included an extensive interview with uh, Mr. Zuzman.
2: I had a mental wish list of dream footage I could build a movie around. It was a short one. A real UFO landing, any movie star humping any other movie star... Hitler committing suicide, the Pope boning an abbess, the second coming of Christ, and a real head-hunting expedition where they, you know, kill a guy and eat him on camera and everything. So Minx buzzes me and asks for a meeting. Midnight, my office. She knows I keep a shoebox full of dough in my desk drawer. I knew Minx was jammed up with J. Edgar's Red Squad. I figured I might be able to get her to... Topline, one of my cheesecake movies, you know, like Strip, Strip, Hooray, or Nudie Cuties in 1952, One Day of Work, 500 Cash. Instead, she walks in with this reel of film and hands it to me. Jesus H. Holy Hannah, shit in your hat, Christ almighty. I knew it. That rat bastard, Doc Hazard, was holding out on me. He had the good stuff the whole time, and talk about good stuff. Real clear shots in focus of naked headhunters sneaking up on a village, impaling their prey, cutting their heads off and roasting body parts over an open fire. And then eating the parts like you'd eat a chicken leg. You could see everything. It was the most wonderful stuff I'd ever seen. Man, oh man, the rubes would scarf this up with a steam shovel. This would play... Drive-ins forever.
3: Herbie makes a half-hearted effort to lowball me, but his heart isn't in it. His eyes are swollen. He's weeping with joy. He offers me 75. I pack the film up and start out the door.
2: I grab her and beg her, beg her to stay. If that film leaves the office, I'll never forgive myself. I owe it to my public to get these pictures out there. This would be the Goonagoona Goona movie to end all Goonagoona Goona movies. I end up laying out five thousand scoots, which is more than I ever paid for anything in my life, including the Bonnie and Clyde death car, Hitler's brain, and Dillinger's dong in a pickle jar. I even offered her a bonus, but she wouldn't
3: take it. He offers me sixty-five hundred if I'll let him have the footage, and then I think this is the way he puts it: let him saw off a chunk. <laughs> I tell him I'd rather have a hysterectomy with an egg beater than have sex with him. 5,000 was more than enough to get where I was going.
0: I'm assuming Mr. Zussman was
4: able to uh, bring this film to market. Oh, yes, indeed he was, and uh, we have the trailer. Ah.
2: And now, a message
0: of importance from Mr. Showmanship, America's most distinguished independent film producer, Mr. Herbert W. Zussman.
2: Thank you. Soon this theater will present my latest and greatest, filmed on location in Borneo, absolutely true, no-kidding motion picture shockumentary. A film of forbidden jungle love filled with weird native customs, blood-curdling orgies, virgin savagery, and acts of cannibalism so horrifying the Catholic Church has rated this film forbidden. So, what's got the Pope in a panic? Are you gonna let the Pontiff push you around so you'll miss your one and only chance to see the weirdest, most astonishing aboriginal love rituals ever captured on celluloid? You've waited your whole life to see this motion picture, and I'm risking my life to bring it to you. Don't chicken out now. See, flesh-eating fiends.
0: Coming this Friday and Saturday nights, women only at 7 p.m., men only at 9 p.m., You are strongly advised to abstain from eating at least 18 hours before seeing this film. Nurse and ambulance in attendance at all
2: screenings. I make you this solemn promise. I will personally give you your money back if you are not horrified, shocked, and thrilled to the very
4: core of your being. To the core of your very being. Yep. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's salesmanship. (laughs) Flesh-Eating Fiends is so shocking that the Catholic Legion of Decency creates an entirely new category in its rating system. Uh, Instead of just the old-fashioned condemned, the CLD declares this film forbidden, meaning that the church hierarchy will, and I quote, call down a malediction upon the transgressor so that his soul will be consigned to the searing hellfire of eternal damnation, end quote, for watching it. (laughs) Right.
0: Naturally, this is manna from heaven for Herbie Z. I mean, he takes off across the country with this film.
2: It's a thing of beauty, the last epic chump fleece. I stay on the road for two years, grifting every dime I can. I'm proud to say that up until the very end, in January 1954, I'm still filling every house and still causing at least five suckers to lose their lunch at every performance.
0: Now Ming Stedlin has $5,000 to make her escape from her adoptive mother in the HUAC witch hunt. So where does she go? It's her greatest adventure yet, featuring a Spanish surrealist who stars her in a Mexican wrestling movie, a Cuban revolutionary who falls under her spell, and, most importantly, the recipe for the greatest martini in all creation. That's The Atomic Bombshell, episode number five, The Sin is Blasphemy, the penalty is death. The Atomic Bombshell, The Minx Devlin Chronicles, is produced in Hollywood, California by Tales Richly Spun. This episode is directed, produced, and edited by Matthew Solari and written by Arlie Proctor. Co-producer Kevin Whittaker, artwork by Rowan Proctor. Special thanks to Caitlin Mulder, Stephen Smith... Bob Rumnock, Tony Russomano, Jennifer Taub, and Michael Rothhaar. Please visit richlyspun.com slash atomic bombshell to find books and movies about the Red Scare, the era Dalton Trumbo described as the time of the toad. And you can pre-order the book that inspired this podcast, Minx Devlin's epic autobiography, where she describes a life richer in melodrama than anything ever dreamed of by Jacqueline Suzanne.